When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Byzantium. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 209, What About Jerusalem? In our last episode, Professor Frankopan raised a fairly obvious question which we've yet to address. What was going on in Jerusalem that provoked so many Westerners to take up arms in its defence? As he pointed out, the city had fallen to Muslim forces back in the 7th century, Why had it taken four centuries for Christians to find their outrage? I will cut to the chase and say that I don't think anything was happening in Jerusalem that could justify the Crusades. The noises coming from the Holy Land about oppression and persecution were no different than those that had occasionally been voiced during the past 400 years. It's just that they coincided with the needs of an emperor and a pope who wanted a campaign to the east to take place right now. Jerusalem had of course been captured early on by the emerging Arab Caliphate towards the end of Heraclius' reign, and it had remained a relatively peaceful city within the Muslim world ever since. Islamic rule was generally tolerant to the peoples of the book, and the spasmodic persecutions we hear about don't seem that different in character to the outbursts of intolerance that took place in Byzantium and elsewhere. Jerusalem had been taken away from Baghdad's control by the Tulanid rulers of Egypt in the late 800s, who were then replaced by the Fatimids in 969. Last episode, Professor Frankopan mentioned disruption and persecution taking place there on the eve of the Crusades, and this was the result of the ongoing conflict between the two major regional powers, the Seljuks and the Fatimids. As you may remember from our Manzikert episode, it was the Fatimids, not the Byzantines, who Alp Arslan was really after. The Seljuks had captured Baghdad and were trying to revive the Sunni Caliphate. 
Speaking very broadly, the Seljuks were, of course, the leading steppe tribe in the Middle East, and in order to provide their regime with unity and legitimacy, they attempted to style their rule after the Abbasid Caliphate. That meant promoting Sunni Islam and its universalist claim to speak for all Muslims. As we've talked about with the papal reform movement, this was probably a combination of realpolitik and sincere religious belief. Ideologically and strategically, this was always going to lead to war with the Fatimids. The Fatimids, as you know, were based down in Cairo and were Shia Muslims, also claiming to speak for everyone of their faith. This was an inevitable religious clash, and in many ways the two sides replicated the strategic position of the old Byzantine-Sassanid wars, staring at one another across the Syrian desert. The complicating factor in this competition were the Byzantines, who held northern Syria and were an obstacle to each side's direct advance against the other. This triangle of diplomatic positions was in place back in the reign of Basil II, when the city of Aleppo became the focus of competition between the three powers. With Byzantium collapsing post-Manzikert, the Seljuks had moved into northern Syria, and as we talked about recently, the general Tutush had captured Antioch. You might think, then, the Seljuks are in the driving seat. And it's true that they captured much of inland Syria and marched on Jerusalem in 1073, taking the holy city from the Fatimids. But this is where the Seljuks hit a snag. Despite making themselves masters of the former caliphate, they couldn't escape their steppe roots. They had divided up the provinces of the Middle East amongst the leading princes of the family to keep everyone happy. And yet there was no established procedure for succession. All the male relatives of the sultan could theoretically have a claim on the throne. As one historian neatly puts it, Family confederations were glued together almost solely by loyalty and deference within the ruling house, and those qualities could evaporate in a moment. So, when the Sultan, Malik Shah, died in 1092, the Seljuks collapsed into civil war, and they would never really recover, at least as a united empire the Seljuk realm would devolve back to the local power bases that suited the geography of Iraq, Iran, and beyond. It was the same process that had happened to the Abbasids before them. This chaotic period naturally led to tensions within the cities of Syria and Palestine. We hear reports of forced conversions at Antioch, of increased taxation in Jerusalem, harassment of Jews in various cities, and of pilgrims being turned away at the harbour. It's no surprise that conflicts between Sunni and Shia Muslims would spill over into attacks on the minorities living amongst them. At Jerusalem, several scholars speculate that it was the Muslims who were in the minority. Large groups of Christians from various sects had settled in the holy city, and the local Jewish population was significant too. Doubtless, these groups of Latins, Orthodox, Nestorians, and Armenians had strong connections with their brethren back home, and wrote asking for donations and support when times were tough. 
but there's little evidence that this persecution was brutal or systematic, as Pope Urban would imply they were when he preached the crusade. If pilgrims were being mistreated, it certainly wasn't all of them. We know of two French nobles who visited Jerusalem as the Crusades were being launched, and returned, presumably bemused, to discover that their peers had just left to liberate the city. And if local Jews and Christians were being tormented, it can't have been widespread, because when the First Crusaders set up their siege of the city, they were accosted by several friendly Westerners who had settled nearby, showing no particular signs of maltreatment. It's also worth noting that in our own narrative we covered an event which seems much more likely to have provoked outrage in the West than anything that happened in the build-up to the First Crusade. Back in 1009, the mad caliph al-Hakim had destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This was a burst of genuine persecution which did draw wails of distress from a few Western chroniclers. But no crusade was suggested. In fact, few Western pilgrims of the time seemed very upset by the ruins they encountered when they arrived in Jerusalem. The church was slowly rebuilt, with Byzantine aid, you may remember, and no big fuss was made in the West. As several scholars point out, this incident suggests that there was little actual knowledge of the real Jerusalem in the West, Though the city and the sepulchre had a prominent place in iconography, liturgy, and the religious imagination of Latin Christians, the actual city, the Fatimid and now Seljuk possession, was not a daily political concern. That concern was something that Urban would have to create. Building on Alexius's propaganda and the molehill of local persecutions, the Pope would build a mountain of rhetoric that would stir the hearts of many men for vengeance and liberation. So it would be true to say that the Muslims of Syria and Palestine had done very little to provoke the onslaught they were about to suffer. Some historians and Documentaries have taken this idea to its logical conclusion, decrying the Crusades as a phony religious war built on lies and evidence of the violence and hypocrisy of Western Christians of the time. I don't think we should be drawn in by this. Yes, the picture Urban painted was largely an exaggeration, but it was little different from the dehumanizing propaganda used by innumerable states across history to motivate their armies. It would also be silly to suggest that there was any difference between Muslims and Christians when it came to war. The idea that the papacy should harness secular violence for its own ends was born in an era when Muslim powers were assaulting Christians every day. In Spain and Sicily, Muslim states were dominant, and Islamic pirates regularly made forays into the south of Italy and France right up until the late 900s. What was extraordinary about the Crusaders was the distance they travelled and their volunteer status. Their motivations and the violence they enacted 
were entirely familiar. As we'll see next week, the idea of crusading brought Latin Christians very close to the concept of jihad, which had been a huge motivator for generations of Muslims. It's just that the target of their violence was often Byzantium, a civilization conveniently forgotten in the game of looking back in anger at the Crusades. Anna Komnini, when noting the behavior of Latin knights and Muslim Turks, could see little difference between them. Next time, we will return to Urban's side as he plans his grand tour throughout France to preach the Crusades. What did he say to get men to drop everything and march east, risking life and limb to return a distant city to Christian rule? We will return to the Levant and discuss the local political situation in more detail when the Crusaders get there. But I should say before we go that the Crusaders, largely by accident, could not have timed their invasion better. With the Seljuks falling into chaos, there would be no big imperial army to chase the Latins away, and even Tutush, the leading warlord in Syria, was killed just as Urban began his preaching. This left the Levant divided between Seljuks, Fatimids, and independent cities, all wary of one another and unable to unite in the face of a small but utterly determined army that would march through their midst to the gates of Jerusalem. <laughs>